I found out in last week's episode that dry land ports are essential to any supply chain strategy, especially if there is a focus on sustainability, as you can cut a ton of carbon emissions by choosing rail over truck. If you missed my interview with Cleo Landucci of Ashcroft Terminal, go and check it out now at letstalksupplychain.com under season two dash episode 89. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain. My name is Sarah Barnes-Humphrey, and each week I bring you the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, new innovation, and most up-to-date information about supply chain. I believe that collaboration is the future of business, and I have designed this show to ensure you have all the information you need to succeed in business and in your supply chain. And now, a word from our sponsor. Like the products you manufacture, it is not unreasonable to expect the merchandise used to promote your brand to do so without posing risk to the recipients of the brand itself. Supply chain professionals can now play a leading role in protecting and growing their brand's reputation with the help of the Quality Certification Alliance. QCA is an independent, not-for-profit, 501c6 third-party accrediting and certification body dedicated to ensuring accountability throughout the promotional product industry supply chain. Visit qcalliance.org to learn more. Your brand is your organization's most valuable asset. Protect and grow it by aligning your values with QCA. Hello and welcome back to Let's Talk Supply Chain. So these two weeks had been adventurous, that's for sure. I finally took a well-needed break and dipped my toes in the white sands of Siesta Key. And then this last week, I was supposed to be in Chicago for freight waves, but the weather created a little bit of havoc and I was not able to get out of Toronto. I so wanted to be there. I was working on a secret project with exclusive uh, coverage of the new DHL Innovation Center that I wanted to share with you that I didn't get to do. And also, I was supposed to be on the Freight Waves live stage with Laura Ann. Well, hopefully... They will have me back in May, and I'll be able to um, give you all the details about that as well. So in today's episode, Irina Roska takes over the show as my guest host and talks with our resident industry expert, Graham Robbins from Border Buddy. And I will share with you in just a moment what you can expect from their conversation about hot topics. But first, let's get to the question of the week. So the question of the week is... Conference goers, panels versus fireside chats. Why do you enjoy one over the other? Now, the reason why I asked this question is because I was recently told that panels were boring and I don't know if I necessarily agreed with that. So I wanted to take it to the community and find out what everybody thinks. So Daniel Stanton says, I'm actually a fan of both, Sarah, but I hate boring sessions. I am with you on that one, Daniel. You can really tell the difference between sessions where the presenter invests time up front in planning and coordination. Eric Johnson, I think Daniel has this exactly right. There's no right or wrong format for conference sessions, just well-planned and executed ones versus poorly planned and executed ones. You have to think about the topic, the strengths of the speakers, your knowledge of the topic as the chair or the moderator, and the program as a whole. 
Jolene says, piling on here, I totally agree that content trumps what format the session is in. I also do not like when panelists use the talk as an opportunity to heavily self-promote. I am with you on that one too, Jolene. Greg White, love fireside chats. It's so organic and the audience is a fly on the wall to the thoughts of the participants. Shauna Baker, yes, the best part of both formats is the higher likelihood of authenticity. A script doesn't really allow room for much outside information that the author wants to share, whereas a fireside chat or panel can deliver some unexpected and authentic sharing. And Keelan Smith, there was actually a conversation between Shauna and Greg. And remember, you can find all of this at letstalksupplychain.com under Listener's Corner, where I actually put down all of the conversations and the link to the conversations as well, if you want to jump in. Keelan Spence, I'm definitely a fan of the Fireside Chat. It's a great opportunity to ask specific, specific questions and receive direct feedback. John McCauley, Got a shout out to my friend, John. He says, panels with quality and diverse participants. Even better with Sarah moderating. Thank you so much, John, for that shout out. I love it. Pamela Hyatt, I think a lot depends on the topic and length of the session. When panels are overpopulated and each speaker gets very little time to speak, it's a tease of what could have been an interesting conversation. Amanda Prochaska, here is a wishy-washy answer. It depends. I personally like to host panels, as you can tap into all the knowledge and networks to increase attendance, but I dislike when each panelist answers the same question. It slows it down and is too repetitive. Sue Turpolowski, I enjoy either as long as they are diverse panels, sick of male-only panels. They should be balanced to gain a more well-rounded insight. And then over on Instagram, Orion Global Partners, I believe they each have their place. Panels are great for different perspectives, arguments on issues or topics, and a fireside chat is great for a single point of view from industry veterans or experts. Well, what an amazing list of thought leaders that weighed in. Thank you so much for all who commented and engaged with the question. And each week it grows and we all get to learn different perspectives from each other. So remember, each and every Wednesday, we post the question of the week in the morning to LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. So be sure to check it out and be part of that conversation. And you may, who knows, you may hear your name on an upcoming episode. So back to today's episode, Irina and Graham have a great conversation about changes in retail, being a competitor and customer to Amazon, which is a really interesting topic because you can be a competitor to Amazon, but also a customer at the same time. And what trends to follow in supply chain? You won't want to miss this. So without further ado, here is Irina and Graham. Hello, everyone. This is Irina Roska. Um, on behalf of Let's Talk Supply Chain, I am going to be hosting today's episode for Sarah, and I am super excited to bring back Graham Robbins. Um, he is the founder of Border Buddy. He is a regular on our show, and we look forward to asking his opinion on some current trends in this episode. So, Graham, do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming on. Um, lots happening. We are in Q4. Um, so, um, you know, as we ramp up for the um, retail season, um, I think that there's some interesting trends that we can talk about. But um, before we jump into some questions, Graham, have you, um, you know, in the past couple of months since you've been on our last episode, um, what are some interesting things that you're seeing that you might want to bring up to start us off with? Well, I, th I think the overarching 
gray cloud seems to be, you know, what is actually happening with the economy? Is there a recession? Is there not? And I think in our role as customs brokers, we're, we're actually very leading indicators of what's happening there. We're not seeing anything significant change right now. And by that, that would just basically be shipment volumes. So our volumes across the border slowing down. When they slow down, that means that retailers and, and, and importers have just ordered less. So we're not seeing anything significant there. And we also look at the data holistically. So we look at the data for all the imports into the U.S. and all the imports into Canada. But there's this also this other thing with regards to what's going on in retail. You know, you've got Forever 21 just just declaring bankruptcy. You've got you've got other companies that are slowing down, uh, closing stores, consolidating. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of activity around that. And so those are some of the things that we're seeing right now and wondering. You know what. What is the fallout of all of this? I heard something like 12,000 stores are being closed in 2019, which is up from about 8,000 in 2018. So, yeah, lots going on. Definitely. And that is actually, I'm so happy that you brought that up because that um, actually lines up very well with some of the topics that I was interested in asking your opinion on today. Uh, which is exactly that. What do you think is happening in retail where we are seeing so many of these legacy stores closing their doors and announcing these closures right before the holiday season? But at the same time, especially here in the United States, we are seeing the National Retail Federation expecting or at least projecting an increase in sales year over year during the holiday season of anywhere between 3 to 4%. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I I often wonder what is actually happening. You know, you see these these not only the stores closing, but the people that are affected. So you know, are they just going to find other jobs somewhere else? And and you know, what what we're seeing is, I think there's a lot of uh, change with regards to distributors or middlemen. So the, the sort of Amazon effect, if you will, where Amazon still sells other people's products, they also have their own products. But the, the companies that seem to be really doing really well are the ones that are completely vertically integrated. So they're, you know, you take a Lululemon or someone like that that is building their own products, making their own products uh, in their own stores. Apple is the same. You know, these these tend to be a lot of the brands that are thriving. And then it's almost like everyone else is competing with Amazon. So you have Walmart and Target and things like that all competing with with Amazon because they're all basically distributors. So I think that's that's an interesting dichotomy, if you will, of the two types of retailers out there that there's more than two types, but those are sort of the main ones that make the headlines. And I think what uh, I, I was thinking about this one a bit today because you heard about Forever 21 and, you know, I just think buying habits are changing all the time and retail is just tough. It's really tough to figure out what does a, you know, a fickle importer or sorry, a fickle buyer really want from a store. And, and it changes every 18 months, it seems. Absolutely. I, I definitely agree with you there working in the industry and in supply chain planning, um, you know, especially in the consumer packaged goods industry, you really have to have your finger on the pulse there. Um, so I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think you pointed out a very interesting trend, which is that vertically, um, you know, that vertical integration in the supply chain. Um, so just going a little bit closer to your suppliers and really understanding uh, the costs of 
of, of goods across the, you know, the end to end supply chain. Um, so that's super interesting. Um, are there any other trends that you um, would find of magnitude um, that, that maybe, you know, newer brands could uh, piggyback on so that they don't end up in the same, um, you know, at the same risk as some of the retailers we've mentioned? Well, since, since we're talking logistics and supply chain, one of the things I love doing, and I, I don't want to say love doing, I, 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 that's probably the wrong word. Whenever there's a bankruptcy, one of the first things I do is, when it's made public, is I, I like to go to the court order or the court recap of creditors. And I think this is really interesting. So for Forever 21... You know, it's basically in the last couple of weeks, the the creditors list has made it through the courts into Canada. And so there's a list of creditors as of September 29th, 2019. And so there's $44 million in in creditors that are on there. And this is all public, so I'm not, you know, not not telling anything uh, anything out of school, telling tales out of school. Most of that is in product that's owed to Forever 21 in Los Angeles. So 33 million of that 44 million is is product. But there are on this list of creditors. There's customs brokers, freight forwarders, uh, ocean carriers, trucking companies, Receiver General for Canada. So there's there's a whole bunch of creditors on here in our industry, and it just sort of really speaks to how involved we are in this movement of this product and. You know they're not they're they're fairly significant amounts for some companies. Some are three thousand dollars, but some are you know six hundred thousand dollars. The receiver general there's uh, there's ocean freight and and forwarding costs that are in the thirty to forty thousand dollars. I just think that this is always something that we see is since as in logistics we don't normally take full control of the product. We don't own it, and it's usually in the stores. And we send a bill, and and if someone goes bankrupt. Now we we are left fighting with the uh, with the you know the receiver, so that's something that I don't like to see. It's just something that I always I always look at, and and you can see companies that are uh, have high risk, so they allow a lot of receivables, they allow a lot of uh, slow payments and things like that, and you see people who are pretty low risk, so they they manage their AR really well, and that's a really important piece in our industry. So I just thought that was a fascinating insight. Whenever I see someone new that has, has declared bankruptcy. Absolutely. No, I so agree with you on that. And I have actually never gone and looked at the public um, records on this, but um, now I will immediately after this call um, because I'm very interested to see that list. Um, so, and I also think that you pointed out something super pivotal to this relationship of global supply chains, which is, you know, as a service provider in the supply chain world, um, you are hedging a lot of your, you know, revenue and your, um, you know, the, the benefit of your company and your employees and everybody else on the success of your partners. Um, and in this case, if you are an ocean carrier and you, um, you know, had, um, you know, a long line of credit with an established brand or organization or retailer, um, which we know a lot of them do. That is, that's a lot of risk to carry, considering that there's been so much consolidation on that market. So, um, super interesting points. Thank you so much for speaking to those. Um, so, just in, uh, you know, to continue the conversation about, you know, market or company closures and market consolidation. Um, can you give us an idea of how maybe some of the shifts in the U.S. retail market are impacting um, 
you know, Canadian consumers, Canadian uh, brands, um, retailers. I mean, we know that Sears is a large uh, brand in Canada as well, and we've seen them um, have some issues over the past couple of years. Um, tell us what's going on. Yeah, and I always go back to my personal behavior. So, you know, we have a lot of customers that are brands and are, are, are you know, are product makers. And so, you know, we always have a bit of an internal thing. We like to support our customers. So if we're going to buy online, if we're going to buy, uh, we try to buy our own customers' products. So if I'm going to buy some food products, I try to buy my own customers' products. And so when we move to something like Amazon, I'm always looking for our customers' products. And lo and behold, they're always there because you kind of have to be there. But this is what, what I'm trying to figure out, and I don't have the answer to, the, to your question possibly, but is my buying habits have completely changed in the last 20 years. You know, I, I don't think I've been to an actual shopping mall, you know, the, like one of these indoor malls where you park and you go inside and all the stores are inside. I've been to a couple of outdoor malls, but I haven't done any Christmas shopping uh, in an indoor mall in at least six, seven years. But that's all I used to do. So I'm not no longer shopping at those stores, but I'm I'm buying the same. I'm still buying the products. But how am I doing that? I'm doing that through Amazon or online. So this is this is kind of the impact is, is that the sales are happening in different channels, and so it's affecting the, the different stores. And the trends that we seem to see with these stores that get into trouble are they have massive footprints of stores. They have a lot of stores, a lot of leases, therefore. And if, if, if volume or revenue just decreases by a couple of percentage points, you know, they could be in huge trouble really quickly because they've got this fixed cost of all these stores that people maybe aren't visiting as much. So these are the trends that we see is just basically what's, what, are the, what are the buyers changing and, and how are they changing? How are their needs changing? And, and how are people, you know, how are their habits changing? And we just, yeah, just kind of have to look in the mirror. Like, what have, what have you done differently in the last few years versus, you know, what you did 10 and 20 years ago? And then, so that's one piece is just buying habits. But then products have changed so much. You know, we used to have to buy things more often because they, they would break or break down. You know, I sort of, my ongoing thing is about televisions. Like, I don't ever buy a warranty on a television. Like, when was the last time your television broke, you know, or unless it was broken by, you know, something hitting it, but it doesn't break down. These products last longer. So you're not turning over and buying products as much in some cases. You know, the keyboard I'm looking at for my computer, I've probably had it for eight years. So I just think that that just buying and, and product cycles have changed. So I think that's, that's a trend. And I guess I'm lastly on this point, one of my favorite ads to look at is sort of the Radio Shack ad from 1991. And it was, it was basically an advertisement of, you know, it was a video recorder, it was an answering machine, it was a Walkman, it was, you know, six different devices, but those are now all in our phone. So, you know, I don't, I haven't bought a Walkman before, whereas I used to have, you know, four different Walkmans over four or five periods of time. I don't have a video camera where I used to have a video eight camera and an eight millimeter camera. So all, all these things just change the way that we buy things, technology changes, and then the longevity of the product changes. So those are just some of the trends that we see. Absolutely. No, I fully agree with you there. And I think that, you know, to your point, right, holding inventories across multiple um, locations and um, especially when you quoted that um, Forever 21 shows $33 million in inventory when they're declaring bankruptcy. That is a lot of cash um, tied into um, into goods that, 
Um, I think that one of the articles about their um, bankruptcy quoted that they were going to look into um, liquid liquidation software. And so as you think about decreasing the cost of the product um, and then paying additional costs so that you can, you know, add software to sell your product at a lower cost, um, that, that becomes pretty mind boggling. Uh, so very, very interesting. And then you also, of course, mentioned Amazon, which um, in this situation, um, obviously it has had a pretty high impact on um, you know, our buying habits. Um, but at the same time, you know, I found an interesting article the other day that actually spoke about um, Amazon's ability to integrate itself into um, its competitors' supply chains and really into its competitors' businesses. And the article pretty much spoke about how Target depended on Amazon for its um, online sales for, you know, over 10 years. Um, so what do you think of that type of competition, but partnership at the same time? How, um, you know, you, as as companies you know, begin or continue to change and as buying habits continue to change, how should, um, you know, organizations think about leveraging a partnership that is beneficial to them with a potential competitor at the same time? Yeah, this one's I, I, this one is tough. You see these companies that that uh, get into relationships with Amazon, and I think sometimes they regret it, but sometimes it works out really well for them. I've, I've uh, wh who is it? wasn't Was it Bed Bath and Beyond or someone else that that would take returns back from Amazon at their store? But they actually reported that they those people would then buy products at their store, so there was a positive to it. But the the statistics that always get me are. You know, Amazon at, is is less than or around five to six percent of all retail sales. So, in other words, they're very small in that piece. Like 95 percent of retail sales are not Amazon. But the number and it probably changed a bit. They're around fifty percent, forty nine, fifty percent of all online retail spend. So. That's just staggering how much how how much that's how much that's changed. So basically, if you're going online, you're the only reason you're not buying on Amazon is because they don't have it. You know, you go to Amazon first. Amazon is a massive search engine, so you don't even Google search for your products anymore. You you just go to Amazon and see if they have it. If they don't have it, you go to Google. And 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 so I think this is this is the challenge that that retailers face is someone like a Walmart has to rebuild their entire company as an e-commerce company, uh, an online company and, and catch up to the standard that, that Amazon sent or sorry, that Amazon has set. And I think that's the biggest thing is, are, are you going to figure out, are you going to compete with Amazon and try to be, you know, try to try to have the same customer experience or are you going to somehow leverage their platform, which, Many many retailers do. They sell their products on Amazon and do quite well there. So I think it's it's a decision that you have to make internally, depending on your size. Agreed. I think that that's a very important point, and especially um, as we were discussing before we joined the call. I used to work for um, a brand um, that is actually sold in Canada as well, and um, we saw some interesting um, dynamics with our relationship with Amazon there. Um, and, and, and so I would say, um, just to kind of add to what you were saying, that um, it's not just retailers that need to really be careful about their relationship with Amazon, but it's also brands, especially because as we think of Amazon itself vertically integrating into their supply chain, 
Um, we are seeing them enter the private label market. And so, um, you know, brands do need to be careful about how maintaining that relationship with the consumer and not allowing Amazon to become more than just a service provider. Um, so, yeah, and at, that that must be tough because you have a popular. Say you, you know, your your ver, your experience in this. You have a brand that is now selling on Amazon. When it does well, well, guess what? Amazon starts building that product themselves. And I actually haven't spent a lot of time looking at how that works and how what the, what's the follow with of the relationship. But I understand myself. I buy a lot of double A batteries. I try to buy. I try to buy ones that are rechargeable, but I, I'm not always able to do that. And now the first, when I search AA batteries, well, the first AA batteries that come up are Amazon. They're Amazon branded batteries. So, you know, maybe Duracell makes them, maybe Energizer makes them. I don't know. I would be surprised if they did. I would think that Amazon has gone out and sourced those direct and, and now they have their own branded batteries and they sell them for a bit less. Uh, they sell them in their own packaging. They they don't ever have to put them on a store, so the packaging doesn't have to look nice. They come in this brown cardboard box, and so they 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 squeeze out all of the margin. Uh, you know, they don't they don't need to have all this excess cost to it. And so, to your point, how how does like do I care about Energizer or Duracell as a brand? Not really, as long as the batteries last, you know, as as long or they're comparable. Uh, you know, then it, I don't think much about that. But then other brands, like perhaps some clothing brands and things like that, I might be more loyal to. But Amazon itself has multiple, I don't know if everyone knows this, but they have dozens and dozens of their own brands of clothing that are, that are not called Amazon. They they're all have their own brands that they don't sell anywhere else except for Amazon. So, yeah, I don't, how, do, how did you navigate that as a brand, you know, the relationship? Because what I understand is once you get on Amazon and you start selling, it becomes pretty quickly a nice percentage of your sales. <laughs> yes, definitely. So um, we had a hard time, I won't lie. And um, part of that was because we were um, we were on the Amazon platform pretty early. Um, and that is important because we didn't really know what Seller Central meant, what Vendor Central meant, and um, you know what, what what Amazon's power was in either one of those relationships. And so, um, I it, my personal experience is that in the um, in the Vendor Central method, you really lose your brand identity. And that really allows Amazon to go deep into that supply chain, and then they start, you know, um, it, it starts to make sense to do, you know, equity shipments from overseas and those types of things. And the more um, the more they get to know about your supply chain, the more likely it is that they're going to um, reinvent it, right? And so um, it, it, I take advantage of the one that's already been done. And so. Um, especially on a product that may not be, um, you know, IP protected or uh, may have been on the market uh, for a very long time, it's fairly easy. And so I, I do think that it's of utmost importance that the brands continue to keep um, in touch with those consumers because that's the only opportunity to ensure that, you know, to your point, um, a clothing brand will continue to have um, customers that, that keep coming back versus, that same exact customer just going and finding an equivalent product on um, on any retail shelf, whether that be online or a physical store, um, that's just of similar quality. So very interesting points, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the you know if you go 
you know, if you go online and, and go to Amazon, for example, it search Lululemon, who you would think doesn't, doesn't sell on there. There, there doesn't seem to be a big presence there. There's 700 items on there, which is, for Amazon isn't a lot. But you know, if you're a brand and you're scared of selling on Amazon because they might they might duplicate your product, but you know, who are you kidding? You can't. You know, the, the idea of you setting up your own website and just putting it out there and and and, and doing some ads and, and getting a, you know competing with their presence, uh, you, you know, there's no point anymore. It's just really difficult to to sell large volumes and and have great you know delivery and and fulfillment for your products at high volumes. You know, d- building that yourself for most brands is not not practical. Agreed, definitely. And it's especially most important when you look at, you know, product variability. So if you're selling products that, you know, vary in size or weight from very small to very large, uh, then it is, it's even more um, constraining for your supply chain to be able to, um, you know, get that product into your consumer's hands within the same timeline and at the same cost that Amazon would. Um, so I'm interested to actually know if, um, I know that Amazon has been, ex- has been expanding internationally for the past couple of years. They have some very strategic locations where they'd like to grow their business. Um, I know they've been in Canada for a very long time. Um, but I'd like to know just what you're seeing. Are, you know, are the, um, is the adoption for Amazon um, the same in Canada? Are retail um, locations affected the same way? Or is there more, I guess, um, loyalty to to, to continuing to give back to that store and retail community. Yeah, I think I think it's a romantic notion to this idea of shopping local and, and things like that. I think a lot of people want that to be reality, and I think you know, to me, part of the ir- irony of some of that is that a lot of local stores buy products that are imported, right? So, is it really a local? You know, it, it, are the products local? So I, I understand this piece about buying local and if it's produced local and, and that whole movement, I get that and, and like it. But are you supporting a store to support it? I think what the numbers show is people won't support a store if it's more expensive, right? You're not just going to, at the end of the day, people care a lot about cost. And so they're not. there's going to be some people out of the goodness of the heart, they're going to pay more for the product pay more for the inconvenience of going to the store. You know, I ordered something on Amazon Canada and and it used to have a bad reputation. Like you could not find anything in Canada. You could not get it delivered quickly. Well, I had something delivered the same day in Canada, just like you would in the U.S. So they have vastly improved their, their fulfillment and distribution in Canada. So, and this was for an odd item. I ran out of popcorn on movie night and I needed it in like two hours at the house and it, it, a bag of popcorn showed up. And so uh, I, did I not buy from the store locally? No, I didn't buy from that local store, but that local store also imported that popcorn from somewhere in the US or another country. So I just think that there's this, this sort of convenience and price piece that seems to always win. It just after a while, people are going to go, well, you know, that, you know, that store was closed on Saturday or they were closed on a long weekend where Amazon will deliver on Saturday. They'll deliver on Thanksgiving day. So, you know, there's, there's this change in, in consumer behavior around that. And then overall, you know, we're seeing them do a lot of things in logistics, obviously, right? They're, they're 
owning the last mile more than they ever have. They're doing that that delivery from their distribution center to the door. They just bought a U.S. customs broker a couple of or a month or so ago, so they're going to start uh, you know offering those services to their their products and their sellers and buyers. So just a whole bunch of stuff uh, going on at Amazon that uh, that I don't see slowing down anytime too soon. In fact, it's just getting faster. Definitely. No, I agree with you. And I like the, uh, the popcorn example because I've actually done that as well. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I fully understand that it's, you know, it, I have a store that's five minutes down the street from my house, but it was easier to just press buy and wait for them to drop it off. So um, yes, convenience is, and, and, you know, we're thinking a little bit differently about the value of our time, or at least, um, you know, at, at least definitely people that I'm having conversations with, um, think about that. And they'll say, you know, is it worth my time sitting in traffic and going to the store or not paying anything and essentially having that, that time back for myself or to or whatever that may be. Um, so it's that time value of money and money value of time. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, you just hit on something that I just had a discussion about and, and it's going to go off in a little bit of a tangent, but it is to do with logistics. It's to do, to do with delivery and consumer changes. So in, you know, I spend most of my time in Canada and we have something called skip the dishes here and it's, uh, it's like Uber eats, right? So, it, but they've made a big dent in the Canadian market because there was no Uber eats here for a long time. So they, you know, they deliver food from restaurants. Not that's not new, but now, if I'm standing in a line at a like a takeout restaurant, you know, I was at there's a place called Blaze Pizza here, and I'm standing there. There's a lineup of six people in front of me. There's I'm waiting for it to be made, and I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? I'm wasting so much time. I had to park. It was raining out. I got wet, and so, and that's only because I know there's another option right right on there backboard there with by the menu it says now on uber eats and uh, now it was actually on uber eats and it's on skip the dishes so i'm going why aren't i in my house right now spent with my my wife and my kids why am i standing in here wasting my time when i know i could press a button and put my phone down and then and then be be there with my family so but that didn't even that option didn't even exist basically especially for canada two years ago so I was laughing to myself because I'm now sitting in a lineup that I was happy to be in a year ago, but now I'm frustrated that I'm in that line. And that goes to mobile ordering at Starbucks. You know, if I see people in line, I'm going, what are you doing? You can mobile order and not stand in line at all. So I think your point about valuing time, as Warren Buffett says, it's the only, he can buy anything in the world, but he, but he can't buy time. So we value that more and more because the world has gotten busier. And so we just want to press a button and everything happens and we go back, you know, we, we do whatever we want to do, not this thing that we need to do. Agreed. I, I think about this. I live in San Diego um, and I've been living here for about four years and I've seen traffic get worse and worse and worse. And, and sometimes I think to myself, is it because of these trends that we're putting more trucks and more drivers on the roads and making people you know, drive around for us? Um, or is it is it the opposite? So is this is this a reinforcing feedback loop, or are we got kind of taming things down because now there's more aggregate products or aggregate orders per car? Um, so I, I don't want to get off on this very yeah. steep tangent, but I, it is it's it's something that I think about when I sit in traffic for hours every day. Um, how many of those? And you see the Amazon trucks or all of the logistics trucks around and the vans, and um, so very interesting. Um, so, um, let's 
kind of just take the conversation back to the beginning because what you said you said something at the beginning that was very interesting um and that was that you know given the fact that there are um you know consolidations in the retail market where you know brand i mean um retailers are closing stores or they might be filing for bankruptcy you are not seeing a downward trend in the import market so meaning inventories and i i know this just from you know market data but obviously you work in the industry in import export um you're not seeing a decline in the in the amount of inventories that are being imported so um what do you think that's that's all about well i i think my our view is that no matter what happens with these stores people are still buying the products they're just buying them somewhere else so you know the 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 value creation that some of these companies that have that have created from nothing like i use lululemon as an example not just because it's from vancouver uh, you know but i mean this is literally a category that did not exist right when i first started going to the gym i was wearing you know a cotton t-shirt and it was stiff and uncomfortable and i was wearing basketball shorts you know nike basketball shorts or whatever and then this is a category that didn't exist. It, it really didn't. And then everyone changed. So you look at a store before Lululemon, and it doesn't matter if it was Calvin Klein or Nike or Adidas, none of them had this athleisure wear, this, this, this very comfortable wear that you could wear all day long. And that most people that wear it don't even actually go to the gym in it, right? They're, they're wearing it around to run errands and things like that. So this is what really I, I look at a lot is there's these things or products that we take for granted today that didn't exist, you know, literally a decade ago. So that's one piece of it to me. And then the, the, so the, the shopper that was shopping at forever 21 is just shopping somewhere else. You know, they're, they're shopping at TJ Maxx or Nordstrom Rack. And so TJ, you know, TJ Maxx and Target and all the, they're all doing well, you know, they, they've increased sales, TJ Maxx and, and Norsham Rack and these these sort of uh, other brands of retailers are are just thriving right now, and so and and now they're also moving online. Nordstrom and TJ Maxx and those companies didn't have online presence. Well, now they're ha- now they have online, so they've got this runway. But I talked to my wife about this a lot because she does a lot of the shopping for us. Is you know what's going to change? Like what do you see changing? Because she used to shop at Forever Twenty One. Uh, she's she's shopped at at other fast fashion places. So she hasn't stopped her buying, you know, we haven't stopped our buying as a family. We're just buying it from different places or it's different types of product. So I, I think that's what happens is it's not like when a, a, a store goes broke or out of business that, that the sales overall decline, people are just shifting to, to different experiences in different retailers. And again, I could go on and on, but just look at the electronics market, you know, we used to walk into a Sony store and buy a television. Well, now you just go on Amazon. It's a Samsung. Well, Samsung televisions really didn't exist 15 years ago. You know, they weren't really in the television market. So, but Sony's television business is basically zero now. But it used to be one of the biggest sellers of televisions. So, it's just really fascinating to see all these brands and these companies that you know, start from very little sales to becoming market leaders. And even in using Samsung again, it used to be Nokia phones. And that was the biggest, one of the biggest sellers of phones in the world was Nokia. Now it's Samsung. Samsung's probably number one. You know, iPhone gets all the press, but there's more Android devices than there are Apple's. And 
they just literally didn't have phones out five years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was. So I think that's the reality is people, the sales don't change. They just move. I think that's a very, very interesting and important point, um, which actually kind of segues us into the final topic that I wanted to discuss with you today. Um, so I'm very focused on small and medium sized businesses just because I think that there are a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of niche markets that new market entry um, entrants can, can participate in. Um, but having worked for the different size enterprises, I, I see the challenges um, and, and I, I, I see how it can be difficult um, to see some of the opportunities that you're speaking of, right? So the, the, the money is out there and consumers want the product, um, but they might be looking for something different. So if I were um, to you know, start a company today similar to Lululemon, uh, but hopefully offering product that's not currently available on the market, um, what do you think would be, um, you know, some of the advice that you would, you would give to, you know, to keep uh, things agile, but also in a way where, you know, things are ready for the consumer when they need it. Uh, but, you know, and also in a way where, I, where, where that company would be able to easily expand outside of the United States. And so, yeah, what are some pieces of advice that you would give um, for somebody that would try to do that? And some of the trends that you've learned from in the past years? Yeah, I just think, you know, retail is not for the faint of heart, right? So there's a difference between having a product and, and, and owning the product and owning the brand and then just figuring out how to get it into consumers' hands. So that's one, that's like owning the brand, owning the product, and then figuring out how to expand into global markets. I think that's actually quote unquote easy you know what i mean by that is if you control the distribution the manufacturing and the marketing and then getting it yes you will have to use platforms like amazon or walmart or target to sell your products but if you're a middleman which we are by the way you know we're a customs broker we're a middleman i think you have to be really looking at where are you going to be in 3 to 5 years you know are you are you going to exist you know are you going to be you know, are, are you going to be disrupted? I hate to use that word loosely, but are, is something going to happen to you? And how are you going to be ahead of it versus, you know, just watching, you know, just watching it sort of circle down the drain? And so I, I think retail is extremely tough. I, I, it makes my heart sink, you know, when I see these, these brands go out of business and these retailers go out of business. And so I think just the advice is, if I was to give advice, is like try to control as much as you can on that product and the distribution and the marketing and and you know the ownership of that product and and have a really great great product that you're obviously that your customers love. On the retail side, if you're not if you're not a single brand and you're a retailer selling other people's products, you have to figure out that you know this this is a sort of a declining part of 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 retail sales. How can we? differentiate ourselves you know target for as example is still doing really well they're growing by three to four percent because they're really in tune with their customers and they're figuring out the re, you know what what they want and what they don't want in the stores so i guess thinking thinking at that holistically it's basically you know start from that customer and work backwards so figure out what your customer really cares about and and you know the other thing is is to take advantage of unfortunately what is happening with some of these store closures, like, can you think of who would benefit, what companies would benefit when a store closes? There's actually, 
a ton of niche industries that benefit from store closures or, or warehouse closures. It's junk removal companies. It's, you know, racking resellers. There's, there's a whole bunch of companies that there's a lot of opportunities there uh, from any industry on, on anything that's happening in the industry, positive or negative. There's always someone that is, is doing well in any, any side of that, that coin. And I love that message because I think that that is a very important um, piece of information, right? That, you know, something closing, um, you know, the same way that we say in life, right? The door closes and and the window opens. Um, It's it's an opportunity for for something better. Um, And I think that that's... um, that's really important. And then um, I did just want to add one thing to something you said, uh, which is, you know, really, really know um, what your customer um, wants and make sure that you, that, that, that you follow those trends and, and really know who your customer is, right? So uh, make sure that you're really in touch with, with the different regions. And if you're a global um, retailer or brand, then really understanding um, the different, you know, global demands and trends in that. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's equally as, as important to really understand your vendors and your suppliers' capabilities, and and taking that you know the the trends from the consumer and the customer and translating those into what does it mean for your suppliers um, and your and then the rest of your of your supply chain partners um, to make sure that you you are running a stable enough supply chain. So. Um, Thank you so much for that advice. I think that that's definitely super important. And so um, I think the message here is there's there's a lot happening in the retail front um, right before the holiday season. But um, while you know some things might not be looking very rosy, it's there's a lot of opportunities left, and we're all super excited about it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for your time and all of your great insights. It's been a pleasure, Graham. Um, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you, everybody. This is Irina Rauska for Let's Talk Supply Chain. Thank you. This episode was produced in collaboration with Border Buddy, the most innovative online customs platform out there. And here is what Graham, the founder of Border Buddy, has to say. More and more companies are looking to expand their reach into global markets, but most don't know where to start or don't have the time to figure it out. Border Buddy sees the struggle and has found a way for you to integrate customs into your e-commerce site, allowing you peace of mind when selling to customers in other countries. Your customers will know exactly how much the costs are to import their order from you to their door in real time. And just imagine what that will do for your business and your sales. Visit us and sign up for 10% off your first clearance at borderbuddy.com slash let's talk supply chain. If you liked this episode, Graham has been on the show a few times to talk about important topics like mental health in supply chain, breaking through the noise in supply chain tariffs and what they mean when the rest of the chain is not keeping up and last mile delivery. And you can find all of those episodes under podcast at letstalksupplychain.com. Next week, I have had a lot of people come to me and ask how I keep up with all the content out there. People are feeling overwhelmed by the amount of content. What do we listen to? What do we read? What do we watch? Well, next week, we are finding out the techniques behind speed learning, which is going to help you with all of that feeling of overwhelm when it comes to the amount of content that there is to consume. 
consume. Um, and I did this on purpose because I wanted to find out how we could consume more information. And so I went on a search and found Howard Berg, and he is the world's fastest reader who teaches people how to speed learn and absorb more information. So I'm super excited to introduce you to him as I have tried some of his techniques and they really do work. So stay tuned next week for this amazing episode. If you would like to continue to support the show, there's a few ways to do that. Follow us, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to our newsletter at letstalksupplychain.com. And subscribe to us on YouTube, the SC Supply Chain TV, and also subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Next, go to ships.com. That's S H I P Z.com. Visit and find out, sign up. If you are a shipper, if you are a forwarder, you're going to want to know what we have been working on. So make sure you put in your information so that you will be one of the first to know what I have been talking about for so long. I promise it's coming. Next, the holidays are coming up and I know you've got a supply chain professional in your life that would totally love some of the merch that we have on the site. We've got sweaters, t-shirts, long sleeve shirts um, with some great sayings on it that uh, the supply chain professional in your life is going to love. We've also got some accessories like mugs and cell phone holders as well as the supply chain dictionary. Next, rate and review the show. Review the show on iTunes and you could be mentioned in an upcoming episode. Plus, I love to hear from you guys and I just want to hear some of the feedback anyways. Thank you once again everyone for tuning in. Thank you for all your love and support and remember everybody ship happens.